millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From AccuWeather, this is everything under the sun. Real news and real stories covering topics from the worlds of science, sports, and space. It's all the information you need to weatherproof your life. And now here's the host of Everything Under the Sun, AccuWeather meteorologist Dean DeVore. And friends, welcome in. This is episode seven here in the year of 2023 of Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. I know if you are like me, the images and the death toll numbers have been staggering and emotional to see for those folks that have been dealing with the devastation from the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. And they prompted a lot of questions from my friends who know, yes, I'm a meteorologist, but might have some thoughts about earthquakes. And so I wanted to get some of the latest information from an earthquake expert. And we have one who has been studying this since uh, he got shaken out of bed in California back when he was a youngster. He will talk to us about that area of the world and what's to come and where else in the world we could see more earthquakes. And is there any relationship between earthquakes and the weather? And we'll also be visiting with our friend Evan Myers, our monthly visit talking about weather and history, blizzards. Two different kinds are going to be in the subject matter in our second segment. Sit back and relax, friends. It's time to talk about everything under the sun from AccuWeather.com. The numbers are devastating. The images are shocking. 50,000 souls lost so far with that number climbing in Turkey and Syria. And there's potential for more as we're going to hear from an expert on earthquakes who I wanted to bring in because, look, uh, the devastating images and those numbers in Turkey and Syria and also some other earthquakes that have popped up in the United States here in the last couple of weeks have gotten a lot of people to top of the mind awareness about earthquakes, where we are in terms of forecasting or predicting how we could see effects what parts of the world and in even the United States are going to be more susceptible to that. And we found this uh, gentleman who I think you're going to enjoy. I know I really enjoyed talking to him and learning a lot. His name is Dr. Jeffrey Park. He's at Yale University. And since he got shaken out of bed by the 1971 Silmar, California earthquake, he's dedicated his life to earthquake research and presentation and letting people know what we know about them. And he joins us here on Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Dr. Park, it is great to have you here on Everything Under the Sun. You know, as a meteorologist, we are the ad hoc scientific experts on everything in a newsroom mm-hmm. sometimes. Unfortunately, I think uh, I did study plate tectonics and movement and that kind of stuff. But um, earthquakes, obviously, with the recent news, Turkey and Syria, and, and even some earthquakes that have happened in the United States, uh, close to AccuWeather headquarters. And there was a earthquake a couple of uh, weeks ago, I think uh, plus four, uh, a little over four on the Richter scale up around Buffalo. And so I'm getting a lot of questions and a lot mm-hmm. of interest in in earthquakes and seismology. Obviously, weather and this are two very different things. There are some folks that uh, have asked me if there's a correlation between weather and seismic activity. I guess the one thing, you know, obviously when when we're looking at top of mind awareness and what's happened in Turkey and Syria, 
some people are are concerned that we're seeing an increase in seismic activity versus maybe the last five or 10 years. Uh, so I wanted to get your thoughts on that aspect of it. Is it is it more? Is it less? I'm sure in the last couple of weeks, your phone has gotten a little bit busier, right? With all this. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. I've had chances to speak to with journalists as far far away as Qatar. Wow. Yeah. So there's interest there. So so just the basic premise. Are we more active seismically or are we less active or is it about the same as you look over averages here over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Well, if you're talking globally, the act, the earthquake activity is still, it's more or less the same. It, 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 earthquakes are a sudden you, catastrophic events, but they tend to occur kind of at, with, a, with a probability that is pretty steady worldwide. We can be pretty sure that there'll be maybe one, maybe sometimes two, what we call great earthquakes, magnitude eight or above, that would occur every year, like one, usually is typical uh, average. And then uh, you go down to, you know, magnitude seven earthquakes, seven something, seven point something in the Richter scale, maybe about once every month worldwide. Most of these earthquakes are occurring in places that are remote to uh, the the world news media. There's usually people, but they're not structures that would cause a great deal of damage. I mean, uh, one, one of the most active places on the planet is the is Tonga, Fiji, uh, mm-hmm. the islands, where, where, where there can be damage from earthquakes, but usually uh, the, 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 the locals have adapted to them and the structures to, to be, you know, but in areas like Turkey, for instance, you can have entire generation of construction that occurs between uh, earthquakes. In fact, more than that, the area that has been rupturing uh, in the in the month of February 2023 was relatively quiet through much of the 20th century. However, seismologists recognize uh, uh, that region of of Turkey as a major. Uh, fault zone that's associated with a major plate boundary, the boundary between the Arabian plate and the Anatolian plate, and that they are moving with respect to each other sideways. Uh, The earthquakes that occurred are consistent with this. But, you know, that motion is often measurable by uh, uh, by global positioning systems, geodesy, geodetic measurements on the order of, of, of millimeters per year. Right. Uh, and that can be seen, but that movement is occurring elastically as the two plates are moving past each other. Yep. And that elastic energy builds up over time. And it could be a decade. It could be a century. It could be two centuries. And then it will become a released. And then and then you'll see major earthquake and then, and then major ground motion. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. You know, when we have changes in the weather and and in some ways it's the same thing. It's like if you think of the, the tectonic plates as air masses. Right. And you've got mm-hmm. movement between in weather, the two air masses that happens rapidly. Right. In the grand yes. scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so the volatility of those rapid air mass changes are what uh, produces the big storm events. If you kind of take that mm-hmm. analogy to earthquakes to me that movement between the tectonic plates in this case the you know thinking about the air masses is small and it's not linear sometimes you're right and then it's just those little movements and after a certain time that energy builds up and has to be released because that's the way it works right and so did i well, is that a good analogy it's a it, it is a good analogy it's a, the analogy is a little bit like um we know that hurricanes will occur when you get enough warmth 
into the tropical ocean and that will that so the these the catastrophic right, right and right. that's the fuel for it in this case it's the motions of the plates that are being driven basically globally it's my, it's the whole convection of the entire planet of the plates moving around and normally it's moving very slowly but wherever you're near the surface the rocks resist this over time and eventually you build up enough elastic strain that they will fail and then there's motion on a fault and then that's uh, the severe catastrophic uh, motion that we can see and yes um it was interesting you talked about the region that has been just suffering now in turkey and syria as you said, it was identified. This is an area they've had problems. Mm -hmm. um, the building code, uh, there was there was building rules and codes and regulations put in, mm -hmm. uh, but it appears that maybe some of the extensive uh, the extensiveness of this damage may be due to those codes and laws and maybe not being followed the way they should in those areas after being a, a generation or two without a major earthquake i mean that certainly is one of the possibilities it's often common that, that occurs also people's memories are short and especially in regions that have not had uh, a major earthquakes in a generation or more that enforcement can become lax. For instance, you know, much of the damage that still occurs in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles area after some of their moderate earthquakes would occur primarily among buildings that were built before the earthquake codes of 1933. And so there's a lot of old structures in uh, in, in in Turkey uh, and and also structures that are not they're, they're simple apartment buildings that may not have had uh, the same scrutiny or they may have been built a long time before the codes were were, were put into place. But this is a, actually a problem. It's something that the government needs to pay attention to because sometimes these buildings, these structures need to be looked at, reinforced, sometimes torn down and rebuilt. And the, the plate boundary is there. It will occur. There will be earthquakes there in the future. The presence of these earthquakes this month in February is loading neighboring faults. It's actually increasing the stress on faults around it. There are uh, studies that have shown, uh, oddly enough, some of these studies were in northern Turkey uh, wow. uh, 20 years ago, that just changing the stresses along a fault zone by a few bars, you know, one bar is one atmosphere of pressure. Right. But if you change it by a couple of bars, you will you will help induce earthquakes there. It will increase the probability of a of, of the next earthquake. It will not necessarily occur tomorrow. It could occur five years on. It could occur a decade on. But but that but gives you, you some time to pre right. to prepare. But you've increased it. Nonetheless, it's just at mm -hmm. this point, we're not capable scientifically mm -hmm. of being able to predict with any certainty when that accelerated uh, situation yes. will occur. So and that's yes. and that's that's the 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 challenge of all of this. Let me give a, 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 a just a, a bit of, of seismology terminology is that seismologists make make a distinction between earthquake prediction and earthquake forecasting. OK. Earthquake prediction is being able to tell within weeks, hours, imminent of an earthquake. And that very, very difficult, except in special cases, like you know that there will be, be aftershocks after a large earthquake. So okay. that, that, that's something where you that you can make a prediction. Sure. But forecasting is something where you're thinking five years, 10 years, 20 years. And we think we have a good we have we understand the physical principles behind that and can make reasonable predictions. But then 
all of those those forecasts, I'm going to use the word forecast properly here, are probabilistic. It means that you're at higher risk, that if you're going to build a structure that you plan to last for 25 years, you'd better expect it to have an earthquake if you if we've raised the forecast there. It will have to withstand shaking of a certain amount. Are there places as we turn maybe our attention to this country? And just let me remind everybody, and this is amazing stuff. I'm learning mm-hmm. everything by the second here. We're talking to Dr. Jeffrey Park. He is at Yale University. Well, he grew up in Orange County. So mm-hmm. you got shaken out of bed one time and that's how you got into earthquake. Is that is that what happened? Yes. In fact, I was experienced the uh, 1971 Silmar earthquake. Silmar, yeah. Wow. That shook up the L.A. basin. And uh, within a year, I had seen uh, the NOVA program on the invention of plate tectonics. And I was hooked. I was hooked. I ended up uh, studying that in college. And then yeah, Princeton a, for your bachelor's it. degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed this. You argued against the theory that large earthquakes could cause observable changes in the Earth rotation's axis. Um, yes, yes. You were you were somebody that was against the norm in that kind of thinking early on. Is that true? Well, there it was a small controversy in uh, in in the early 1980s and and late 1970s, and in which I was involved in. But when you did the calculations properly, you could tell that the uh, uh, the that that lar- very large earthquakes can actually move uh, enough material around to change some of the kind of like what we, you would call the moment of inertia of Earth. That Is would that actually kind of like ch- in your clothes dryer when part of it gets all jumped up into one part exactly. and, it's, and it's starting to give out that bad noise. And so you've exactly. got the movement, the, the rotation isn't as nice. And that's a, that's a good analogy. And that and that you would you would move enough mass around that that Earth rotation would 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 go off kilter a little bit mm-hmm. as though you would like flick a spinning axis, a spinning top. It turns out actually that meteorology has a bigger effect than than Earth earthquakes do because there's a lot more mass moving around when you're moving water. (laughs) Let's talk about the United States. Um, Obviously, Southern California has the cred for being the earthquake capital of the United States for Mm -hmm. generations. Been seeing more in the middle of the country. Oklahoma has been seeing a lot recently. Yeah. Uh, Yes. And Mm -hmm. how are we in the United States about potential earthquakes going over the next several years, decades? The western coast of of the United States, the west the West Coast is an area of very active earthquake activity of different types of earthquakes, depending on the geology and the local plate boundaries. Uh, uh, the famous San Andreas Fault has a strike-slip motion in which uh, the, the the two sides of the fault move sideways. Uh, but if you go up to Seattle, you'll have a, a rather large and somewhat dangerous what's called a subduction zone, where part of the ocean floor is actually diving underneath the coastline. Right. And that's a region that we know has sustained an earthquake that's as large as the earthquake that devastated Sumatra in 2004. We know this because uh, uh, the tsunami that was caused by an earthquake in the year 1700 was measured in Japan. In the 1700s, an earthquake in northwestern United States in the Seattle, Washington area was so strong that it produced a tsunami that was recorded in Japan is what you're just telling me. Yes. And it's mainly because the Japanese have been measuring Mm. uh, uh, the tides and tsunami waves 
for a lot longer than that. So they right. monitored that. So there there was a mysterious pulse that was in their data set that, that a, a Japanese seismologist dug up and related it to a sort of Native American reports of a large shaking that occurred in the Pacific Northwest in the early 1700s. Now, of course, the Native Americans didn't have a calendar but the Japanese did. So it's not the 1700s. We know that a year, we know the day. Interesting. So are, so that's an area that I think as a seismologist, you're saying, well, we may be overdue there. I'd say that's a concern, actually, the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. What about eastern parts of the country where, you know, like I said, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Buffalo made news because they had, a, I think, mm-hmm. a 4-3, I think it was. Mm-hmm. The eastern U.S. has, uh, and Canada, has some really interesting causality, the geologic and geophysical factors that are involved in their in their seismic activity. There's maybe one tenth to maybe one hundredth of the seismic activity in the eastern U.S. That, as there is along the major plate boundaries of the western U.S. Here on the east coast, we're not close to a plate boundary. The nearest plate boundary is actually in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. But we live on a coastline that only 12,000 years ago was carrying a glacier full of ice that was a kilometer high. And it had pushed down the land by a substantial amount. I mean, a kilometer of ice would push the land down by some fraction of the kilometer. (laughs) Right. At least a half a kilometer, you would think. Yeah. Yeah. And so since the, the glaciers have retreated, that load has been removed and the coastline has been rising. That tends to cause shear stresses right at where the old edge of the ice sheet had been. So there are faults that are not very active, but they but they exist as zones of weakness that can relieve some of the stresses that are being uh, uh, built up as the center of the of North America rebounds. Any other parts of the world that we should be thinking about here in the future or looking at uh, that you think are potential hotspots going over the next uh, several years? I'd say Turkey has got some concerns on that zone. About it may half, not be done yet, right? This is it's not done. The, it's not done right. yet. In fact, uh, the, I'm mean, actually looking at the at the map as I speak to you. Is that the magnitude 7.8, magnitude 7.5 occurred on faults that were fairly close together. One right. kind of must have triggered the other when it went off. Uh, more recently, about two weeks later, there's a magnitude 6.3 earthquake that occurred on an extension of that fault zone to the south towards, uh, I believe, was Antioch. And so that's probably a portion of a fault zone that had been stressed by the main earthquake, but had not broken yet. And it may have. And then if you go farther inland, up towards the the source of the Euphrates River, this uh, East Anatolian fault zone is there still ripe for rupturing uh, uh, to make up about the same amount of motion as was Mm. released in the earthquakes earlier this month. As we wrap up here, I started saying, you know, no proof or no thing in terms of whether the weather influences seismic activity or not. We're, We're just starting to unwrap the relationships Mm -hmm. between Mm -hmm. seismic activity, volcanic activity, Mm -hmm. the release of that heat that's in the middle of the the world, in the middle of the earth, up to the surface. Mm -hmm. So I think those are things that we haven't even gotten our heads wrapped around scientifically when we're looking at trying to make weather forecasts and all the kinds of other things. And so 
you know, hopefully uh, all these things continue to come together in terms of relationships. Is that something that you've thought about, too? Some of the stresses that are involved in weather, they're much smaller than the stresses involved in that could of loading by nearby earthquakes. Right. But there have been some studies that have found kind of weak correlations, say, between tidal stresses and earthquake activity. Usually it's lower level earthquake activity, small earthquakes that are slightly more numerous when the tidal stresses are greater and slightly less numerous when tidal stresses are lower. So it's unlikely that weather by itself or weather systems are going to be uh, an important uh, trigger for large earthquakes, but they're not completely out of the picture. Do we feel that at some point we'll start understanding how what's going on seismically, earthquake-wise, may affect the weather and the atmosphere on the top side. So going the opposite direction. Opposite direction, right. Does the seismic and the volcano Mm -hmm. actually be affected on our climate change situation, global warming, all those kinds of things? So if we go back, we want to find geological analogs in Earth history for what we're doing now to the atmosphere with adding carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Right. Uh, This has happened in, in Earth's past many times. And it usually is that one of the greatest sources for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere on short timescales are massive volcanic eruptions. Mm. Volcanoes emit carbon dioxide. And so uh, the carbon dioxide then can help trigger greenhouse warming the same way that our burning fossil fuels is doing. There are episodes in Earth history, and these are actually episodes that mark the boundaries between different layers of the geologic time scale. Those happen because a lot of species die out and others speciate and and replace them. Many of these, the biggest turnovers of species occur when there are are these sort of massive worldwide volcanic events that among the things, the effects that they have is that they add a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Funny how scientists and historians have done a lot of work and and sometimes in the moment we forget all that stuff, right? And it's nice to be reminded that this stuff has happened before, not to say that we can't help the outcome here with being responsible in some ways, but I think- uh, Oh, yeah. This is this is certainly something I think in the end uh, people are going to start taking a look at that that relationship. Dr. Park, do, anything else you wanted to add as we wrap up? My only uh, other comment about that is that that when volcanoes push carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, eventually has to come out. But actually, a lot of that comes out when uh, you weather rock rock at the surface. You turn like granites into clays and things. This is a process that is occurring all the time but can be accelerated if you increase the surface area that's a virgin rock that's exposed. And that's one of the strategies that's being put forward as a way to uh, address global warming. It's to actually create more rock surface to actually absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We will leave it at that. And I think there's a there's another podcast interview with you and other people, my friend, in, in those regards. But Dr. Park, thank you so much. This was fascinating. I hope you enjoyed 
the questions. Uh, yeah. I hope we ask the good questions and we'll certainly, I think uh, a lot of people will be informed because of this. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, it's fun to talk. Thanks again to Dr. Park. We look forward to having him on again. I think as you heard there towards the end of the uh, interview, uh, there are certainly more on things to pack between earthquakes and weather and climate that we could talk about with Dr. Park in the near future. And we'll keep an eye on the earthquake situation here on Everything Under the Sun going forward. We have an eye on history here. Every month we visit with our friend Evan Myers to talk about weather and history. And we've got a blizzard of information coming up. This is Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Whether you're at home getting ready for work, packing the kids' lunch, or commuting, listen to AccuWeather Daily. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and you'll get the top trending weather story of the day every day. Welcome back to Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Once a month, we sit down with uh, our friend and colleague, Evan Myers, who is our font of knowledge in terms of weather and history. And here in March, it's very common to get volatile, huge storms that can create blizzard conditions. But did you know there was a time when the word blizzard didn't even have anything to do with the weather? And there's also another kind of blizzard that has nothing to do with snow. Evan Myers joins us now on Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. You know, we're looking at March, and it's hard to believe. I mean, the eastern seaboard has been really stormless in a lot of ways. Uh, just getting, a, as this podcast drops, coming off of a pretty significant situation from near New York City up through Boston and probably one of their most significant storms. But this is the time of year, Evan, where we see ramped up blizzards in the Northeast, and it's because... This is the time of year we're starting to see those air masses try to move. The cold air wants to hold on sometimes in the north. And then the warm air, well, it's been really surging northward all winter. We've had uh, incursions of milder than normal air. And so when you have those kinds of differences, it can really spin up big storms. And we saw that back in 1888, the blizzard of 88. Let's talk about that blizzard that uh, really defined one of the earliest uh, weather stories for blizzards in the North Atlantic and the Mid-Atlantic states. Well, that's right. You know, you hear the blizzard of 88. You think, uh, is that 1988? No, no, 1888. And you're right. You know, cold air is heavier than 
then warm air. Yeah, we saw that it, last week. Cold air's got to move. Warm air can't push cold air out of the way. The, 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 the opposite occurs. Cold air pushes warmer out of the way. So if cold air doesn't retreat, where's the warm air go? It can't go into the ground. It's forced to ride up and over the cold air, and you get that kind of lift and spinning motion in the atmosphere, and you can crank up some big storms. And, you know, it's interesting, prior to the blizzard of March 11th, 1888, that affected New York City the most, but really affected all the Northeast, prior to that, in the decades before that, from prior to the Civil War, there hadn't been a really huge snowstorm in the Northeast, and there hadn't been a huge snowstorm in New York City, and New York City had grown exponentially as far as its population is concerned. You know, you look back at the numbers there, Evan, you're right, around 1850, there was only about 850,000, and by 1880, it had ballooned up to 2 million people. So that's explosive growth in those 30 years. Well, absolutely. And we had all that growth, no big snowstorms, but all that was about to change in March of 1888. And we can reconstruct the weather maps, and the scenario is as you laid it out, their cold air actually moved in as a huge storm with uh, moisture-laden air came moving up the eastern seaboard, and it just spun up right over New York City, a bomb cyclone, really, as we talk about today. And the interesting thing is there's a couple of new things that came into existence. First of all, the term blizzard was a new thing. It wasn't used in conjunction with snowstorms until... The 1870s, Okay, a newspaper in Iowa termed a big snowstorm there a blizzard. Previously, had been used to talk about cannon fire. Oh. So explosive, you know, right. explosive development, bomb cyclone. See, that's, it's, I, it's love, kind of I, I love etymology like that. So the word blizzard didn't really come from the weather. It no, came actually it, from warfare. It, came, it did. It came from the boom of cannons. And so Iowa used that. Iowa newspaper used that. And so by the 1880s, though, it had been around for about 10 years, and it was uh, certainly in much more common use at that point. The other interesting thing is, Dean, is that snowplows, <laughs> the first snowplow that was used in the United States was in Milwaukee in 1862. But snowplows didn't really come into existence in most of the major cities until the turn of the century, until about 1900. Wow. So you have cities exploding in population, right. all kinds of new transportation, elevated systems in New York City, no subways. Right. There was no subway in New York City uh, built until 1904. Wow. So it was all elevated trains, and they, they came into vogue right after the end of the Civil War. So you had elevated tracks all over the place in New York as the population continued to explode. And then you mix that in with this giant snowstorm that hit very cold weather and there was no way to clean it up the way they cleaned up the streets prior to the the advent of snow plows was they used snow rollers they would roll the snow try to pat it down but that just made everything icy Icy, and prior to 1890s it was the responsibility in New York City of the police department to clean now the streets. Now it's sanitation. It is. Right? Well, and, and, well, right, you know? right after the blizzard of 88 and the horrible things that happened, all the people that died and all the people that got stuck and so on, they transferred that from the police department. They created uh, really a streets department that uh, did the cleaning. But it's interesting. The storm was slow to organize. About 10 inches of snow in Philadelphia, but then it turned rapidly into that bomb cyclone and... 20 inches of snow in New York City, 45 inches of snow in Albany, New wow. York, New Haven, Connecticut. And with with winds that I'm seeing 85 gusting. miles an hour. So that would be like 
probably producing 10-foot drifts in places? Well, so tens of thousands of people got stuck. Well, maybe not. It was about 15,000 people, I think, that was estimated got stuck on the elevated trains because the drifts got all the way up to the elevated trains, and there was no way of getting folks off those trains. There was no way of clearing the streets. It was just a mess. 400 people died in the blizzard of 88. Yeah, and you think about it, at that time, about one in every four Americans lived in that corridor from New York City to Boston. I mean, that certainly important that corridor is now and how many people live on that. And so when we have a storm uh, that we see hitting that area, uh, and honestly, this scenario is something that concerns me about later on this month into early April, where we could see some kind of uh, development up along the coastal areas and this kind of bomb cyclone. It's kind of interesting, Dean, even though this occurred you know, more than 130 years ago, it is still the benchmark right. to which all other storms are measured. It, it's 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 really interesting. Let's talk about a blizzard of another type. They call this the Black Blizzard, but this has nothing to do with snow. This is about the Dust Bowl back in the 1930s. It, it very much is, and it was called a Black Blizzard because it turned the sky black. Huge dust clouds. Really, it wasn't dust. What you know when when I clean my house at home, you know that's dust. <laughs> that is this dust. is not dust. When you <laughs> when you or Lynn clean, that's right? the, I don't that's see, right. my, I don't I don't see you up there with my, your uh, my your job. Well, I don't think you've been to my house when I was <laughs> okay, cleaning, right. so we'll just stop it there. <laughs> okay. But it's my job to do the vacuuming, and we yeah, do okay. have we do have animals at home, and yes, so the amount do. of the amount of hair that those uh, you know cats and dogs it's it's interesting. But <laughs> and it was, this was not dust. What this was was topsoil. This was dirt, and it was raised into huge billowing clouds. So it, it was clouds. so dry that you had gone down and, and just basically made the, the layer of, what, two, three inches of just pulverized well, dust that was blown around. It went even deeper than that, and, there, and it's kind of interesting. It's a combination of the weather and the fact that it was unbelievably dry and was in the midst of a horrible drought, but also farming techniques. Mm. The fact is the Great Plains— at one point was called the Great American Desert because it really didn't get much rain. But there was a lot of high grass that had deep roots that grew there and held the soil in place. There was about a 20-year period in which uh, things became uh, more moist around the 1900 to the 1920s. And so farmers were encouraged to plant more crops. So what did they do? They plowed under all that high grass mm-hmm. that was holding the dirt in place, and they plowed, they planted, planted uh, right. uh, which much uh, smaller roots, and then it reverted back to the dry conditions. It was before the great uh, irrigation that you see with all those big things that uh, if you'd ever driven out west on the plains, those uh, giant irrigation things that are almost like a home sprinkler, except mm-hmm. they cover a much greater, <laughs> right. a much greater area. Five, five they, parking lots. They, they tap into the, the subterranean uh, aquifers that are out there, but they didn't do that then. And so what happened was it dried up. There was nothing to hold the dirt in place, and then as it got drier and drier, and as you mentioned, the the dryness got deeper and deeper, it was just ripe for big storms to just pull up the dust, pull up the dirt, and blow it all over the place. Amarillo, Mar- Texas, six feet, feet of deep. Da- yes. Yes. Six March feet. 15th, wow. 1935, right in the midst of this, uh, of the Dust Bowl, just choking billows of dust were named. They were named black blizzards because it turned it turned day into night, and it just was black outside. One of the worst of these black blizzards struck Amarillo, as you mentioned. Six people died, but 
hundreds or thousands of livestock starved or suffocated. And as you said, six feet. So this is not six feet of snow. This is six feet of dust that piled up, dust and all, dirt, all Real over dirt, the place, right, right? Just like topsoil. Like uh, it was, uh, it was, yeah. t- it was, it was everywhere. And uh, you know, this caused the Great Migration. This is what uh, caused the the Okies to, to head to California. Uh, this is the the Grapes of Wrath. Of uh, you know, read that great uh, novel Steinbeck. by John Steinbeck. Yep. Uh, Woody Guthrie sang about all this kind of stuff. It was uh, it was a terrible time. The, we were in the middle of the Great Depression. People were, were starving, and the compounded was the, the weather and the drought, and the, on top of that were these huge storms that occurred. Some of this dust uh, and some of these uh, black blizzards blew as far east as Washington, D.C. One event occurred in which in Boston it turned the sky dark during the middle of the day from dust from Kansas and Oklahoma. Amazing. Friends, that'll wrap up Episode 7 of Everything Under the Sun here in 2023. We hope you join us again next week where we take that place where the weather meets your life and talk about it, whether it's sports, golf, uh, outdoor activities, gardening, astronomy, everything where the weather can impact the things that you do. We'll talk about it here on Everything Under the Sun. For our executive producers, Ken Prell and Andrew Robb, and our hundreds of team members who work hard every day, 24-7, to produce the information that can help you weatherproof your life, whether it's on our AccuWeather apps, whether it's on Android or the Apple platform, whether it's on our website, AccuWeather.com, where you can also see AccuWeather Now. That's our streaming feed of our AccuWeather Network presentation and other information as well, or those great radio stations that you catch me on every morning here on AccuWeather. Uh, we appreciate your support. We'll see you next week, another episode, episode eight on the way next week of Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review Everything Under the Sun on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And of course, if you have an idea for a future podcast, just email us at accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com.